here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It... I'm Ira Madison III. I'm executive producer, Louis Bertel. I've never really had a title before. It's so shocking to have one. Yeah, congrats. I know. <laughs> you earned it. <laughs> Staff writer, Louis Bertel, elevated. I'm so um, excited to talk about Coachella with you, but I have to ask, did they play Natalie Cole's cover of Pink Cadillac? Because I just heard that walking into Starbucks, and girl, that song is still fucking fire. Who would have played that? <laughs> if you ask nicely, I don't know. There's a lot of DJs there. They can like look it up on their phone. <laughs> I heard our friend Ty uh, Sunderland was playing there. I'm sure he could put that up on his little fucking iPod or whatever he operates off of. Ty Sunderland did play. Uh, and also Vincent came out to sing um, Higher during um, Ty's DJ set. Uh, and it was like a remix of it where uh, only he sings uh, every verse. And... It was amazing. I love it better than the original. Oh, interesting. Vincent, if I want to see him, I can just go to Barry's Boot Camp down the street. So I am <laughs> not super sad to have missed that. Seems like a nice guy, though. Uh, he's like a star, you know? It's, it's just, it's just so wild that, um, he immediately has like all the presence and the making of like someone who, like, when you step on stage is just electric. Can I tell you something? And I say this with affection to our friends over at Los Culturistas. Matt Rogers calls so many people a fucking star. It is not the term now upsets me. And, uh, uh, he'll, he, I mean, whatever, like somebody has large enough eyes. She'll be like, that's a star. But also maybe being a star is about having large eyes. So I don't know. Are you starting drama because we both had Michelle Yeoh on the show last week? I do think she's a traitor. I do. Um, <laughs> That was unusual that, that that like never happened, strangely. Like we've not had the same stuff. I don't think that's ever happened before. And judging from the screenshot, it was the same day. Oh no. Oh please. She got off the zoom with us and rolled right along in. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, oh, there was faggots one and two. Here's faggots three and four. <laughs> uh I actually um thought that the conversations bookended each other perfectly. Oh, okay, good. Uh, I refuse to uh, listen to that podcast, so I wouldn't know. But uh. <laughs> uh, and I also, I also just sort of love, like, you know, there's um Wednesday is like Gay Podcast Day. You no, it, yeah. you get Los Culturistas back right. to back. Uh, uh, yeah. What else do you get on Wednesdays? Is Grey's Anatomy? I don't know. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't listen to other podcasts. No, I have to say, I'm always thrilled when people like come up to me and be like, "Oh, I listen to the podcast," just in general, but also because I it is hard for me to listen to people speaking without me being in the conversation. Like, you know, that meme of people like listening in on a conversation, pretending it's their best friends. I can't do that. I have to no. mm. If I hear an opinion about throw a name out there, Eddie Redmayne, look, I have like six jokes ready to go. Guys, he looks like Amelia Earhart. Okay. See, I'm in the conversation now where I belong. Mm. If only he would take a flight. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> a brutal tank. You wish Eddie Redmayne were dead. Wow. We don't know that that bitch is dead. Oh, that's true. Right. She could be on that island. She could be with the Lindenberg baby. Is that anything like the Lindbergh baby? Yeah. Uh, the Lindenberg baby was the actual um, best friend of the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he was also kidnapped, but no one talks about the Lindenberg baby being kidnapped because the Lindbergs are wealthy and white, and the Lindenberg baby was um, you know um, was mixed. Oh, I see. Oh, got it. Are you pitching to Peacock yeah. right now? What is this uh, I reboot am, tale? I am, okay, <laughs> I am kidnapped mulatto, the okay. Lindenberg baby. Well, that was a real journey, and we thank you for coming to this meeting today. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to get into a lot more of my Coachella opinions um, this week, and we're also going to talk a bit about Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, icon legend. Uh, I, I was going to say, I, I was going to bring this up in the segment, but I'll just bring it up now. I think among celebrities, it's the fastest voice recognition you could ever have with a celebrity. Like in under one second, you would know it's Gilbert Gottfried. And I don't know that anybody would be faster. The idea of recognizing celebrity voices is so interesting to me too, because obviously there, there are some like Gilbert's who are iconic and right. loud. Uh, and so like immediately recognizable, right? Um, speaking before when you were talking about just sort of like people recognizing us from keep it. I am always still floored when someone's like, I recognize your voice immediately. Oh, it, right. Well, no, because they're, they're taken to their Wednesday morning where we zap yeah. them into consciousness, which are, with our incredible opinions about whatever. Jane I just Fonda. will rarely hear a voice and be like, Oh, I know who that is. Even like my best friend's voice. Oh, you're right. Me too. I, I don't know that I would be able to place things like that immediately either, unless maybe it's a song I'm listening to, but otherwise you're right. No, I, I don't think I'm that acute when it comes to that. Um, we also have a very exciting interview this week, and I tried to contain myself, um, as I speak to Alexander Skarsgård about uh, his new film, The Northman. Guys, I was supposed to be a part of this interview, and then I got, I, I had a rehearse for something at work. It's, I fucking love Alexander Skarsgård. Did you get into passing at all? Who spent two seconds casting him in that? Because he, they were like, if you want like, evil blonde guy, I mean, he does it well. I was busy talking about him being naked in every episode of True Blood. Oh, my God. You're, I mean, Edward R. Murrow over here. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting to the facts that people want to hear about. Okay. No, that's what I mean. No, the Peabody is coming your way soon, I'm sure. Anyway, I'm sure Alexander Skarsgård will talk about passing on this week's episode of Lost Culturistas. Ugh. Fuck them. Fuck them. <laughs> Actually, quickly, right. speaking of Bowen Yang, did you see... uh SNL this weekend. I was loving Lizzo's new song. I love Lizzo's new song. I do not love whoever is dressing her right now. Didn't love the outfit. It was a little, uh, it, well, it reminded me of Dua Lipa's recent tour is kind of what the, uh, vibe, which is kind of appropriate given that it's a disco-fied song and it's, you think you would hear more songs like this in the wake of future nostalgia, which 
you know, was allegedly the beginning of a, a disco revival for us all. But it actually is disco sounding. It sounds a little bit like um, Old Luther to me, and it's called About Damn Time. Yeah, it might be my favorite. It's very Niles song. Rogers. Niles, Niles very, Rogers is exactly what it sounds like. It's yes. very, um, you know, Bruno Marzi. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very like um, JT copying Niles Rogers, uh, but n- neither of them produced it. Weird. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love the song too. Um, and I, I just want, I, I like her outfits when she leads into camp. Uh, like I love when like Marco Monroe from, um, House of Avalon was sort of like styling her. Um, Brett Nelson was styling her. Um, I just like, I, I just think that sometimes when you are dressing, you know, sort of like, uh, bigger black women, you know, like it can veer into like, drag queen territory mm. um and because you know p- people just have no taste sure, uh, and, I, and I, I just re- i've really liked like uh so much of her looks uh when they're fun and campy and fashion uh and the snl office was just very weird mm. uh and it, also she did a good job hosting too she was uh game among the recent rash of uh, musicians who hosted snl i thought she acquitted herself nicely yeah. Uh anyway, we'll be back with more keep it. For the team that brought you Adopt the State, Every Last Vote, and oh yeah, some pretty massive victories in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty, Vote Save America is launching their biggest volunteer program yet, Midterm Madness. To meet the scale of the challenges in 2022, they've divided the country into four teams, East, South, West, and Midwest. Each team has one to two battleground Senate races, one to two battleground gubernatorial races, and dozens of competitive House seats, state legislative races, municipal elections, school boards, etc. In 2020, the Vote Save America volunteer community and the Adopt a State program helped make over 9 million calls and send over 6 million texts to voters in battleground states and helped make the difference in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and my home state of Wisconsin. This year, Wisconsin is probably Democrats' best Senate pickup opportunity thanks to incumbent Republican Ron Johnson, who said that climate change is bullshit Obamacare is the single greatest threat to freedom in my lifetime and that the J6 attackers truly respect law enforcement. And those probably don't even crack the top 10 of the craziest things that have come out of his mouth. Uh, that was so inspiring. The Midwest also has 25 competitive house seats, including several in my home state of Illinois. That's my Leslie Unborn and Victor Victoria impression. And dozens of battleground state legislative seats. Midwesterners in some states will also be voting directly for progressive policy. Illinoisians will see a measure on their ballot to codify the right to collective bargaining. Ballot measures have historically been extremely successful at advancing progressive policies, even when Democrats elsewhere on the ballot face a tough national environment. So head to votesaveamerica.com slash midterms to learn more about the regions, what's at stake in 2022, and sign up to get involved right away. All right, well, we're back. More Keep It. Week one of Coachella was over the weekend, headlined, allegedly, by Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, Swedish House Mafia with The weekend, and, you know, I went. I would say you're our entrenched reporter. Thank God we sent you out there with your lanyard. Yes, me and James Charles running around the desert. Oh, was he there? 
of course she was there. Well, here's my, <laughs> well, here's the thing about James Charles. I'm never curious where James Charles is. So I have no way of knowing where James Charles would be. That's T. That's T, actually. Uh, you know what? There are a lot of, um, a lot of celebs moseying about. Um, I am upset to know that Charlie Poof was just wandering around and I did not run into him. And now he was not performing at Coachella. He wasn't correct? performing. He wasn't performing. No. Wow. And so I'm sure he was wearing one of his bucket hats, like the other 10,000 attendees there. Like <laughs> Henry Fonda and on Golden Pond. Uh, Chalamet was there. He was? Um, oh my yeah. God, pain. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, um, alleges that they saw Margot Robbie. But um, the story is very murky, and they were on drugs. And also, Margot Robbie kind of looks like everybody, so you never yes. know. Yes, but she has been to Coachella before. Oh, so. okay, all right. So it's 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 possible. It's possible. It's possible. Um, yeah. So let's get into this program. Which yeah, so I assume I, you always... this, I assume this means you watched a ton of music. Actually, like you. I watched, I watched a shit ton of music. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, I, I mean, that's what, sort of why I always love going. Uh, I'm not one of the, um, influencers who goes, that goes just to the parties in the desert. There are parties that happened in the desert, but Coachella is in India. Um, and then the parties are usually in like Palm Springs, which are parties that are like an hour away from the actual festival. So if you want to go, you're going to be sacrificing seeing something else or you're going to be stuck in traffic all day. So, um, a lot of people show up to just go to the parties and not actually go to the festival. No, I want to say that the party aspect sounds attractive to me, but I just, I enjoy off season Palm Springs so much more. Like I love, mm-hmm. I, I love the, uh, luxuriating in a mid century, you know, you want to feel like the cast of Bewitched was recently just hanging out around you. That's what I love about mm-hmm. Palm Springs. Not like we're all dressed like we're in a Kesha video and everybody's 23. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of, there was a Rhonda, um, the weekend of Coachella. Oh, Rhonda is a big gay party here in LA, which, uh, yeah, it, it feels like we have the same, there's like four branded gay parties in LA and there's one of them every weekend. So if you have quote unquote FOMO for one, it's ridiculous because a synonymous party is going to be the next weekend. Anyway, Rhonda is one of them. But yeah, but this one was for Palm Springs attendees. And then of course, a bunch of people drove down from LA just to go to it. Okay, great. So they weren't interested in the artistry of Swedish House Mafia. So they're, Listen, dead, to, they're you know, dead to us. Yeah. Gays are the sisterhood of traveling parties. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, but if we get into just sort of what I saw, let's first talk about the headliners. Okay. Harry Styles, Billie Eilish weren't giving. I'm weren't sorry. giving. They weren't giving. I mean, Billie did her thing and people are divided on whether or not, um, she was it. You know, the stands really loved her. Um, I've seen her before and I thought that previous, I thought her previous Coachella set, which had some cakes in it, um, was slightly better for me. Um, it, it was weird too because she, she ended her set with, uh, just shouting out to the audience. Thank you. Sorry. I'm not Beyonce. And it's like, Whoa. okay, girl, I'm like, I'm like over this self deprecating thing. Also, by the way, 
uh, it's just like the wrong note to end a performance on. Now I'm thinking about your subconsciousness as opposed to the music. Also, it's like, girl, people are effing rolling. Just, just go with it. Okay. People are looking at the sky. Their pupils are (laughs) are giant rhombuses. Well, not her teen fans. If, if, okay. If teenagers make it out to Coachella, I'm thinking about the movie 13 right now. I'm turning into Holly Hunter. (laughs) I'm, I'm wearing my boot cut jeans and I'm pulling my kids into juvie. Uh, the thing about Coachella is that you go there for like to have basically a party in the desert, you know. And then I think that when you have performances like a Harry and a Billy after that aren't really uplifting, mm. it's it sort of takes you down a bit. Uh, the highlight of Billy's set for me was actually Damon Alburn showed up from Blur and the Gorillas. And you could also hear uh, on the live stream that happened because um, Coachella is always live streamed every year as well. Phineas muttering, uh, we're going to get sued by Taylor Swift for this. Right, because Damon and uh, Taylor Swift had that little back and forth when I forget what Damon said about her that got in the L.A. Times. She doesn't write her own music. Right. Then he, yes. then he said that like Phineas and Billy were like um, amazing songwriters. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, my, she, Billy did do my favorite song of hers from the most recent album, which is Oxytocin. Though my verdict on I her. I loved it. Yeah, that's a great song. Though my verdict on her remains that I like her music and love her. I think she's a cool, one of a kind person who actually is like, she, she exemplifies what people think Gen Z music and aesthetic is. While as mm-hmm. a personality, she is not that at all. Like she seems like, motivated and fun and rad you know as opposed to you know zonked out which i guess is what the z stands for is that what the z stands for i know i'm like abby hoffman <laughs> defining generations over here yeah i thought it stood for zoloft yeah right that could be could be zonked <laughs> is more general so mm, zoloft nation can't wait for the sequel to prozac nation. <laughs> but anyway i i generally enjoyed billy okay. um but i i see door I do sort of agree that like I vibe with her as a person um, more than I tend to vibe with the music, even right. though I actually absolutely love this album. Um, it sounded better on the album to me than live. Right. Not music I would need to hear live. That's how I feel about yeah. that. Yeah. Harry Styles was extremely disappointing. And which that is, really sucks because really people are so it's, amped for him. Yeah. People are amped for him, but it's also weird to even think about him headlining Coachella, it's always been sort of weird just because what sort of hits does he have? Right. That sign of the time song. Like, is he going to pull that? I mean, also, did he, does he dip into one direction or no? We got, that's what makes you beautiful. And that's it. Mm. And I feel like, you know, sort of Beyonce, right? You know, like she, first of all, had more albums than Harry when she hit the Coachella stage. Um, so we're already off with the comparison, but she will dip into her Destiny's Child hits. Um, cause they're great songs and they're audience pleasing, you know, like you'll get a bootylicious, you'll get, um, uh, a survivor, you know, like she, she will amp you up with those. I mean, Harry doing that's what makes you beautiful is just sort of like, here's the one damn one direction song you're going to get from me. And, and also like one damn like gigantic hook you'll get from Harry Styles. Not that I don't like his solo stuff, but like that's what makes you beautiful is obviously got that supercharged radio friendly thing. Also, yeah. you know what is the underrated, uh, one Direction song, Night Changes. That's the one I was I mean, like, Night Changes, Night Changes is iconic. Yeah, I love that song. I'm, I'm also partial to Kiss You. 
Oh yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that song in ages. Actually, I haven't heard any of their songs in ages. It's it's always weird. I've, I know I've talked about this on the show. The sensation of when music is inescapable for a long time and then you don't hear it for years and years. Again, it's like if you heard Bodak Yellow right now, you'd be like, whoa, it's been four years since I've heard that or however many, how long it's been. But it used to be every song on the radio. I mean, Honey Dijon played uh, Bodak Yellow during her set. Oh, really? Well, well, you know, which is fucking great. Apparently, Madonna showed up at a Honey Dijon concert over the weekend. And in Los Angeles, which is down the street from where I live. So, uh, I mean, not not that I need opportunities to like run into Madonna. I think she needs to stay (laughs) 25 feet away from me, but it's pretty unnerving. Uh, it was at this club called Sound, uh, and side note, um, apparently, um, the gays were upset with this party. Uh, because, because it was at this straight venue and, uh, Mm. You know, they love taking their shirts off to dance, um, especially to Honey Dijon. Um, but I guess security was telling people to put their shirts back on. Oh, my God. It's Madonna that- didn't want to see that faggotry. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? If anybody has had enough of the faggotry, I think Madonna is Guys, sit down. I don't want to see your tattoos of me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Honey Dijon was fucking great. Uh, she sort of closed out the festival and was opposite, um, the weekend in Swedish House Mafia. I opted for that for like a fun dance party over, um, seeing the weekend because I've seen the weekend live before and I prefer listening to the music mm-hmm. rather than seeing it live. Um, Swedish House Mafia, I saw a bit of, and they were fantastic. Did you get to see Carly Rae Jepsen? I did see Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Rae Jepsen was fucking amazing. And so here's oh, my th- thing okay. about Harry, I, too. That's exactly what I needed to hear, because I've been worried for her in this new era. I wanted to know if she played no, any of the new No, she was songs. amazing. Yeah. She was amazing. She played the new song, uh, Written on the Wind, I believe, produced by Rostam. Uh, it's a great song, and she seems like... She's still the same Carly Rae Jepsen that we've always been into. And that's my thing about her and some of the other people who performed. There were plenty of performances from people who were more lively, more engaging than the headliners. Mm. Harry Styles was a very disappointing headliner because, one, like I said, he didn't give us a like a moment of crowd-pleasing songs with um some One Direction hits, which is like, that's the whole point of Coachella, you know? It's like a big mainstream event and it's sort of like drawing people in with your sort of your history, you know, uh, and Shania Twain showed up during his set uh, to do man. I feel like a woman and then sing the one with him. And she was the most exciting part of his set. Oh, well, I mean, that's somebody who has headlined just fucking football stadiums. So I'm sure she was ready for that. Not that he hasn't, but like she's been doing it for a hundred years. And also, uh, so you ever just listen to a Shania Twain album? The way those would be engineered were like she would put out one album and it was supposed to put out hits for like seven years or something. So it's just like it like it's overwhelmingly banger oriented. And I mean, every like young straight man in the audience knew those Shania songs, too. Oh, yeah. Like they, they, they those those were inescapable songs when they came out. I watched the uh that don't impress me much video recently. And what's shocking about it, I mean, other than the the leopard or cheetah outfit, whatever it is, she is really washed out in that video. It's like bright white light on her face all the time. And yet no one has ever looked better. It's It, it, it looks like someone took a picture poorly of somebody and yet she looks amazing. It's a Michael Jackson video. Yes. right. <laughs> no. You know what? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
before Harry was um I'll get back to our pop girls like Carly Rae Jepsen, okay, good. Aoyama, good. Kim Petras. But so before Harry, Big Sean played. Oh, how and did that Big go? Sean Big Sean was fucking fantastic. Oh. Uh, I'd never seen him live, but he has so many hits and he's been on so many songs that um he was able to play his features, he was able to play his songs. Um and friends came with me who sort of like didn't really know him but it turns out they knew a bunch of his music because his music's inescapable too uh his crowd was sort of like bigger than harry's crowd weird and he wasn't a headliner he was right before him and megan the stallion's crowd um who was the absolute fucking best of the weekend um bigger than billy's and she wow. was right before Billy. Doja Cat's crowd was fucking huge. And this year, a lot of people were talking about the fact that the head, the acts before the headliners who weren't granted headliner status, who were sort of like the pop and um, hip hop spear, Big Sean, Doja Cat, Megan, like were better than the headliners. Wow. I'm, I, I am grateful for Megan because not only is she a new and obviously exciting rapper, but the, like, sh- she's, committed to showmanship you know like there's no and actually doja cat too like if you see them on an award show you know like all right put the snacks down you're actually going to get a full production here megan was like exhilarating from the moment she hit the stage from the outfits which unfortunately were dolce and gabbana but we're going to ignore that (laughs) dolce and gabbana sucks because um they sort of have a history of like racist homophobic um remarks uh and just generally being shitty people yeah, you know? it'll be right on Instagram. Uh, you can you can read the remarks, and then of course they've yes. been to jail for their like bizarre uh, business dealings. Yeah, um, they are really sort of going hard with dressing like black celebrities right now, um, because you know black people uh, have generally been like shut out of the fashion industry, uh, but it's harder for black people versus white people, you know, to get um outfits uh for red carpets and you know like uh for like award shows and things and i fully believe that they're just giving away shit to like black Mm. um stylists um so that they can dress black clients um and sort of like paper over their um shitty past and behavior Mm. well uh, it's like it's very obvious like it's giving payola Right. <laughs> Paola, one of the great words and haunted Dick Clark for the rest of his career. But uh, I'm sorry it was worth it. It's an amazing word. Um, okay. So Megan gave you a great, um, Megan gave set. a great fucking show. Um, like a, everyone I talked to was just sort of like, that's the best of the weekend. Uh, and Coachella can sort of be hard if you're like around a group of people in the crowd who sort of like aren't on the same level as you. But thankfully I was around people who like knew all her lyrics were very excited to see her. Unfortunately, Doja Cat wasn't as amazing. And this is when you get into the disconnect between the streaming versus the live production. Everyone who saw Doja Cat on the stream saw a fucking amazing show. Um, the production oh. was, the production was too much. You, you know, when there's like the huge screens that should be showing like what's going on on stage because people in the back aren't close enough to see what's going on. Uh, at certain points, she just wasn't on the screen or there were other weird graphics going on showing like her planet, her vision. And when she was on the screen, it was like there were like 15 different Snapchat filters over her each time. So you could actually barely see her. This and show, that doesn't make a fun show. That, you know what that reminds me of? Every time I hear a recap of a Super Bowl halftime show from somebody who is at the stadium, because mm. it's built 
only for television and you can barely hear the people or see the entire thing. Obviously, like a stadium is gigantic. So depending on where you sit, you may see it a lot or not much at all. But, uh, I remember one friend of mine was at, it was, that was a Beyonce. No, it was Madonna's and they, which was like kind of what, what, which was built for television and looked generally great on TV. And he said that he felt bad for her watching in the stadium. Like no one was reacting or knowing what was happening. You know, it's just, it's oriented specifically for cameras. Damn, so you mean people didn't even see Janet's titty in the stadium? Maybe. Could could have been. <laughs> uh, they didn't even see MIA's finger. Oh my god. Oh but, but, but that was her rogue moment, like putting up a middle finger. Am I like what? She was barred from coming back into the US for years. Uh, no, it's like a middle finger. It's like that's something uh, I, I'm tr- like that's something Kid Rock does. I don't know. It's such a strange <laughs> moment for her. Uh, Maybe Madonna so ga- told her to do it. That could have been. Anyway. Uh, so the gay pop girls, um, Carly Ray, iconic. Right. Uh, Rina Sawayama was oh, of fucking course. amazing. Friend of I adore her. Yes. I adore her. Uh, she is very into her emotions uh, and like is a very nice person. As a German, I think person. that's the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um There was a moment where uh, she, you know, had us um, try to do a um, say gay chant and I never want to do one of those in my life again. <laughs> wow. Was she secretly Deborah Messing? Who was doing that? <laughs> Patricia Arquette, is that you? <laughs> Uh, I get the Don't say gay really hit the fifty to sixty actress crowd hard. <laughs> yeah, I um, I get the sentiment, but I I don't think it's helpful, and it feels it feels weird saying it. Right. Also, it's just like we're just out here living, being gay. I don't need I, I don't need to make a rally for the rest of you guys to get behind whatever the fuck it is I'm doing with my life. No. Um, Kim Petras started out with the entire Slut Pop EP, and that was great. Have we um, had a moment to discuss the Slut Pop EP? I don't know if, if uniformly it's amazing, which is feels like a read considering it's like 14 minutes. But <laughs> there are some real funny. Funny songs and fucking good songs on it, uh, namely Throat Goat, which if you're familiar with the Wikipedia of Nancy Reagan, you'll know what that's all about. And then <laughs> XXX, X-X-X. that is the song. Perfect. I love that. You put that on any party, I'm having a good time. Unfortunately, she had a lot of technical difficulties, and so... Um... She's a lot of technical difficulties getting out of the chart, so uh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, the second half was a bit of a... um. It was a bit of a struggle, um, you know, with mics and shit like that. Uh, uh, she didn't get to do coconuts, um, uh, uh. in Malibu. And let, cause let me tell you, the Coachella set is like, uh, the Apollo. Uh, when your time is up, <laughs> when your time is up, they pull you off Shuffle that stage. They- <laughs> did she at least get to do, um, Heart to Break, which it truly is baffling to me that that did not chart. I mean, one of the, Great pop hooks in the past however many years. Ten years, I'll say. She did, but she did a remix of Heart to Break, and I don't want it at all that I was not here for. Oh, oh wait, wait, with, with, I don't want, but another. No, it was like she did like two just sort of like slut pop-esque remixes. Hmm. Give us the song. How mysterious. Yeah. Um, anyway, I had a, I had a pretty good time, uh, at Coachella. I will say that this year was, um, uniformly um disorganized 
it was sort of like, you know, two years off because of the pandemic. It seemed like the, the traffic situation is just sort of a mess. Um, the cell phone service situation is a mess. Like they've had 20 fucking years to figure that out, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, it was just felt very slapped together this year. I mean, normally they drop even the schedule of like when people are performing, like a couple of days before they dropped it like less than 24 hours before mm. the actual festival happened. Like people are driving to the desert, like checking their phones, like when the fuck is the schedule dropping? I would almost send you back for the second weekend just to, Round up more celebs walking around because you know, like again, there will be none. There will you, be none. <laughs> you think it's a first weekend thing? The the celebs and the gays um, influences are all first weekend. All I know is one time years ago, uh, I went with a friend to Chateau Marmont. I forget the the occasion, but th- that that's if you don't live in LA, that sounds like oh, you got to go to Chateau Marmont. But no, it happens from time to time. Everybody goes there. Um, and they have and, bad salads. Uh, many problems but anyway i saw fucking diane keaton there once and then it occurred to me you know what diane keaton's got to do something so it's like when you have these opportunities <laughs> where celebrities may be somewhere you know what you probably will see a whole bunch yeah uh i will also say shout out to the avalanches uh who are this uh australian music duo who were fucking amazing I wasn't expecting the live show that I got, and I thought it was great. That's sort of what I love about Coachella when you just can sort of – you're into an artist, and you go and check them out, uh, and they sort of surprise you in ways you didn't expect. Um, disclosure was great as usual. Black Coffee was great. Did you see any um, – did you see Danny Elfman? I did not see Danny Elfman, Because, unfortunately, well, apparently he but was I, the slave. Yeah. But I did hear him mash up um, – I did hear that he mashed up the Simpsons theme song with the Desert Housewives theme song. Come on. I mean, which is a gay dream. Right. Also, he could have just closed out his set by being like, and here's my wife, Bridget Fonda, and then pointed at her, and then everybody would have been screaming and crying and rolling all over again. Bridget Fonda. Do you think that would have happened, Louis? <laughs> if I'm Do you running really Coachella, think that would have that's in the contract. <laughs> Single white faggot's going to be drawing you up a contract. <laughs> um,. Lastly, uh, Maggie Rogers, great as usual. Uh, I love her new, um, dykey haircut. A, a few people have those right now. Florence Pugh yeah. talking about you. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's giving like, um, 90s chic. Oh, sure. You know, like the like short pixie haircut is coming someone, back again. It's just like a should, wife beater. Someone should be showing up to Coachella in Lilith Fair garb. I mean, that's just how life should be. <laughs> uh a purple disco machine fantastic as usual and um the city girls the city girls were amazing so uh and i i will just say that jt and carisha are so fucking funny because they clearly you know like a 40 minute set for them um is a lot just be like thrust into this without you know a ton of like live shows under their belt um but they, they're just so funny and have great personalities that like you don't mind when JT's like, you know, uh, I'm gonna need y'all to sing this one for me because I'm tired. Oh, you know, you know what? <laughs> we need to keep like a personality index of just new celebrities who actually have interesting personalities because it's just not a requirement anymore. We're in the Dua Lipa universe where you can just sort of fall asleep in front of us and we love it. So let's <laughs> keep track. Like, you know, like, like Doja Cat. You, Good. You we need nar- more of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more of that, less narcolebrities. Yes. N- oh, wow. Do you write for EW? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, when we're back, Alexander Skarsgård joins me for a chat about the Northmen and a lot more. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our next guest you will know from True Blood, the iconic Big Little Lies, and recently in HBO's Succession, which all of you know is my favorite TV show. He's also a part of what I would call the Skarsgård dynasty and the star of the Robert Eggers' latest film, The Northmen. So please welcome to Keep It, Alexander Skarsgård. Hi. Hey. It's so nice to have you here. Pleasure, Aaron. Um, I weirdly have a, um, Alexander Skarsgård story that I tell people from when I worked at MTV news and it is, um, I was, it was at the MTV movie awards and I think it was when you did Tarzan. Oh yeah. And I was at the bar trying to order a drink and there were a ton of people there. Uh, and then you showed up at the bar and the bartender immediately went to you. Um, because who wouldn't, um, but then you pointed out that I was at the bar and had him get my drink first. I thought you'd say you, I pointed out that you were at the bar and said you're you're in my way. Get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> was I wearing pants? Uh, well, I mean, you usually don't wear pants uh, in anything I've seen you in, uh, <laughs> which was going to be one of my first um, questions. But you, that was the night that I, I presented a, an award with no pants on at the yes. movie awards. Yeah, you had pants at the after party. I did. Okay, all right. Yes, yes. Right, so I don't have to apologize for, for walking up on you with no pants. I don't think you'd have to apologize for that. <laughs> right, good, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, that brings me to this question, though, from True Blood to Tarzan to now the Northmen. Um, you famously just have roles where you 
have to not be wearing anything on set constantly. Um, yeah. How have you gotten used to that? No, it's it's not that I've gotten used to it. It's, it's uh, I demand it. It's in my contract. <laughs> I refuse to work with clothes on. <laughs> it's uh, inhibiting. I, I I need to be free. Yeah. No. I. It's um. You're right. There's been a couple of projects with uh, little to no clothes on. Yeah. Hmm. Um. I mean, thinking about like True Blood in general too, you know, you, I feel like that was every day on set, just constantly, you know, having to either film a sex scene with someone else or, you know, sort of have to film sort of a scene where you're covered in blood, um, and not wearing anything else. What's that like on set, I guess, and just preparing for this is my job and I'm also acting while doing all of this? Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I, yes, it was quite a graphic show. Um, and we would kind of oscillate between killing and having sex every other day. And sometimes both simultaneously on, um, it was, uh, no, it was, it was so crazy. And, um, uh, it, an absolute blast showing up on set and they're like, all right, so today you're going to rip this guy's heart out and then you're going to drink out of the heart um, using the aorta as a straw. And, <laughs> and then you're going to jump into this orgy over here. And I'm like, okay. That's a, that's a good day's work right there. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, we had a it was seven very, very crazy, but fun years. Uh, well, going from, that which was a violent you know television show to the northmen which is also incredibly gory and violent what would you say the differences were in i guess sort of shooting scenes like that where you're doing a lot of you know like stunt work or you're you know doing a lot of gory scenes like eating someone's heart or uh the northman was definitely a more um kind of extreme and immersive experience we shot True Blood um, on mostly on sound stages in Hollywood, and we shot it um, in in a quite a conventional way. It wasn't a conventional show, in, <laughs> uh, but 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 um, the way it was shot, we did have coverage. We could chop big fight scenes and stuff and, and, and into bits and pieces, and um, would often have more than one camera going, so you'd have more coverage on. The Northman was um, shot on some very remote locations, um, uh, and the way Robert Eggers, the the director, the way he works is um, is quite unique, especially when it comes to a big action adventure movie. It's done on film, which is quite rare these days to shoot on film, uh, and it's done with one camera, and most of the scene are shot with just one long, it's just one long continuous shot, one take. Um, so you don't really have the, the luxury of, of uh, chopping it up into bits and pieces and focus on one part of the fight and then finish that, have a cappuccino and then go on to the next. This, you basically have to do the whole thing, um, which was a, a, a blessing and a curse there. It, it demanded a lot of, preparation and rehearsals in order to get that right. Cause some of the big set pieces are very 
there are lots of um, components and moving pieces to, to kind of to make that work and uh, and very challenging. But it was also again that immersive experience was uh, exhilarating and thrilling because again when you're on set and in in and the set is actually built where um up on a mountaintop and uh not on a on the back lot or on a sound stage and and it it Robert is also um all about authenticity and historical accuracy so you know that it, you're it on a live set that looks exactly like a viking village would have a thousand years ago and and you get to play the sequence and go through it the whole thing from the beginning to the end so when you're in it and the adrenaline is flowing, you can actually just let go and then go till the very end as opposed to stopping starting, which is often the case. So definitely more challenging, but, but also in a way more rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this film, you are reunited with, uh, Nicole Kidman, uh, and you had such great scenes with her in Big Little Lies. Uh, and now you have, an amazing scene with her in the Northmen that I'm sure everyone's going to be talking about. Uh, <laughs> once the film is released, um, what do you like most about sharing scenes with Nicole? And what was it like being, I guess, like in this extreme environment too, as opposed to how you shot Big Little Lies? Shooting Big Little Lies and sharing that experience with Nicole was, um, and is one is one of the highlights of of, of my career. I, I privilege of working on such a uh, with such amazing material with uh, one of the greatest actors of our time. On uh, to go into that darkness together and and, and um, w- was extraordinary and and and, uh, and and obviously very difficult uh, because of the subject matter how um h- how dark it is uh, twisted. Uh, but we became very close on the set of Big Little Lies and we formed a really strong connection and, and, and a bond. Um, partly because we, uh, we had to, in order to go there, we really needed to take care of each other uh, mentally and physically. I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I, 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 that Nicole was my partner in that because she is absolutely extraordinary. Um, obviously uh, as an actor, but also um, as a human being and, and Again, it was, um, coming out of that was, um, it was a quite a journey. And, and we, 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 we said, uh, that it'd be great if we could find something else to do together and be reunited. And so when the first draft of the Northman came in, um, there was no question about who we wanted for Queen Guthrun. So I, I, uh, met up with Nicole and we talked about it and, and, um, we were obviously thrilled when she said yes. And, uh, it's another, um, very dark, very twisted. This time we're mother, son, not husband and wife, but, but <laughs> equally dark and twisted and, 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 uh, um, and dysfunctional. Uh, um, but, but in, in that scene that you, that you referenced, um, was actually our first scene together. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Nicole joined us. Uh, we had spent two months shooting those big set pieces, the big action scenes. Um, and, and, um, so, that was the first day, first day together. And, um, and after two months of crawling around in the mud and with, just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm bruised and, and bloody and, uh, in a lot of pain, it was thrilling to shoot all those action scenes, but to be in an intimate room 
uh, intimate setting with to be reunited with Nicole um, after too much of big action stuff, and 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 to get to work on that long, intense, dark, twisted scene um, was such a treat. Um, and again, we already had that connection, that trust, so we could, in a way, just hit the ground running uh, when we started working on it. And um, I don't know how Nicole felt, but I was just like buzzing. I was so excited because again, it's so well written that scene and so surprising. And to kind of jump in and, and explore that together with with Nicole was um, one of the, the 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 highlights of the entire shoot. And I mean, obviously, you know, you've you've come from a um, acting um, family background, but you know, working with like Nicole. Uh, you've worked with like, especially to like gay movie, movie viewers like me, you've worked with a lot of iconic actresses from like Nicole Kidman, Julianne Moore, uh, Kirsten Dunst in Melancholia. You know, yeah. like what's it like working with, uh, I guess sort of like these actresses who are at the top of their game, who've been, um, doing this sort of forever. Uh, and what have you sort of learned from having them as scene partners? I think all those three ladies that you mentioned are they're up there for a reason. Um, they are extraordinarily talented, uh, but also um, people want to work with them, not only because they're talented, but because they're also, uh, they bring a lot of joy to a set and enthusiasm and energy. Um, so that's, I think that's why um part of the reason that people just again keep coming back and want to work with them again and again because they're they're so fantastic and uh, I had a privilege of working with uh, with Kirsten not only on Melancholia but she did a show called on Coming a God in Central Florida and I got to play her husband again on slightly lighter tone more comedic than um than Melancholia but but again to be reunited <laughs> with, with with Kirsten the way I was reunited with Nicole was um it, it, it's so wonderful when you've um, had that shared an experience and it's so intense to, to then years later um, uh, to be reunited on and, and working with, with, um, with someone who's at that point, a, a dear friend on, uh, and uh, when there's that connection and so much trust and so much uh, joy in, in jumping in and starting to work together. So I've been, like you've said, I've been very fortunate in working with, with, with some of the greatest out there. Yeah, I mean, Melancholia is truly, like, one of the best films of the past few years. Uh, and one of my favorite performances. And we actually had so much fun shooting that movie. I remember that set. We shot it in southern Sweden. And we were just laughing, having a great time, like, going out to dinners, drinking on weekends. And when people, I mean, the movie is about the end of the world. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so people imagine, like, and, you know, it's dark and depressing and uh, and people imagine like, oh my God, how do you guys make it through that? And I was like, we had the best time. Like we went to a music festival in Gothenburg one weekend <laughs> and living the dream. It was amazing. Uh, maybe because we because we needed it, that it's the subject matter and the, the, the relationships are so dark and dysfunctional that maybe we need a bit of balance. So, but it, but it was a really incredible experience. Well, I mean, it's a Lars von Trier film too, and like you'd you'd expect, like those films are dark and twisted, and you'd expect, I guess, the set would the the sort of 
process of making it would also sort of mirror that. I mean, what, what, um, what have you learned about Lars von Trier, I guess, from, um, your father being in so many of his films? So Lars is diametrically opposite Robert Eggers and his <laughs> style of filmmaking. And I, um, uh, without sounding too diplomatic, I, I love both and I love, I feel very privileged to be able to go from one to the other. Uh, I just worked with Lars again, um, a couple of months ago. He's doing, um, a sequel to the kingdom, his, um, limited series that he did 25 years ago. Um, oh, wow. and Lars is, uh, Rob is all about meticulously planning every shot, every detail, storyboarding it, um, uh, lighting the set for hours. And it, it's, it's just every shot is, um, a Renaissance painting. Uh, <laughs> Lars, you show up to a set working with Lars, uh, you don't, we don't block scenes, not even, I mean, you don't rehearse it. You don't block it. So you show up and Lars is just like, okay, let's see what happens. Uh, and I'm like, well, should I come in through the door or I'm already here? Or I oh, will see, have fun, play. Okay, go. And then the camera is, and it's all natural lights and, um, and you can move around 360. There are no, um, marks that you have to hit or, mm-hmm. um, you, you, again, you just like, play around with it and uh it's often completely chaotic but but <laughs> somehow Lars finds something interesting in that chaos and then um he'll pick up on it and then you know start to massage it and go again and and obviously he'll give notes once we start shooting but his approach to it is very much um very free form compared to to Robert I mean what was shooting that limo scene like in Melancholia, where you know that was that was our very first day on set. And um, speaking to like Lars's uh, style of of, of filmmaking, where we're in the limo, and again, we don't block it, we don't rehearse it. So Lars is like, "All right, you guys are sitting here. Alex, you're talking to the driver, trying to direct him and help him uh, on this like winding road. Um, And maybe at some point, you'll get out of step out of the limo to help him out to direct him." and I asked, all right, Lars, which side, which door would you want me to step out? Cause I was sitting in the limb in the middle, like, you know, um, cause I, on a normal movie, uh, the director would be like, oh yeah, well, I'm doing the master from over here. So it's actually good if you step out on this side, cause then I'll see you or, you know, um, but I'll never forget the look Lars gave me when I asked, like, so which side? And he's like, Alex, I don't know. Uh, don't, whatever you feel like, well, Explore it. Good. I'll find you. I'll find you. And that kind of, I was like, all right. Okay. So this is the, the, the style of filmmaking where, um, you basically just do what you feel like and then he'll come running with a camera handheld and find you. Um, and that kind of, so that set the tone. And that was no matter how complex and difficult the scene was, we, we had scenes with five cars pulling up and people getting out and, um, technically quite, quite messy scenes and, still no rehearsals no like it would be complete and utter chaos but um he i guess lars finds some 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 um uh creativity in in that chaos mm-hmm. um is there anything that you feel like um you know you've learned from um your dad you know like in terms of 
acting in terms of just sort of, sort of like how you approach work or do you find that you um have a completely different approach to like material than him? I mean, you've worked with him in a, in a few things as well at this point. First of all, he never really, um, I, I, I'm grateful and I appreciate that he never really tried to steer me in any direction. Um, in, um, in terms of, uh, the career choices. Mm-hmm. When I, I was a child actor for a bit and when I didn't want to do that anymore when I was 13, he was super supportive. Um, and then for eight years, I didn't want to do any acting and he was, and then when I came back to it, I was like, when I was 20, 21, I want to try it out. He was equally supportive. So that's kind of been his approach to, um, to all of us, me, all my, me and, and my siblings of, he's always there if you need advice or help or, but he's not gonna, um, and obviously, um, try to share experiences and, and, and stuff that he's learned uh, throughout the years. But, um, uh, he's very much, his approach has always been very hands off and explore, go have fun, do your thing. Um, all I want is for you guys to be happy and I don't really care, um, how you find that happiness, what you want to do. I'm, I'm here for you. And that gave us, it gave us a lot of confidence and allowed us to go out and find our own paths. And so, so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and then I, I've always admired his approach to, to the industry, um, and to his profession. Cause it, it, he's got, it's, it's a hybrid of, he takes his work incredibly serious and he works super hard and is diligent and, um, it's always on time. He knows his shit. He's done his homework. He, 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 um, but he's also, he also doesn't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. The job nor himself and <laughs> not the end of the world. And, um, it, and I think that's a healthy approach to it where it's not the most important thing in the world. Like it's, 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 it's important and it, it's a big part of, of who he is and, and, and what gives him joy in life, but it's not the most important thing. And I think that's quite healthy. Um, especially when it comes to all the chaos around, um, the, 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 the actual work when you're on set is one thing, but there's obviously so much around it with, um, releasing a movie, the, 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 the press junkets, the, the, the award shows, all like all that chaos mm-hmm. around it that um, he's always had. I admire his approach to it and has a very healthy kind of distance to it where he can laugh at it and, and how, how silly it can be. I mean, how exhausting are press junkets for you at this point? Because you do big blockbuster films, but I mean, I imagine even like you did True Blood for seven seasons, you know, I imagine yeah. for seven years you're being asked the same question. I find it. Well, first of all, it depends on the project. Like if you're, um, genuinely excited about a project and you're, you, you, you love talking about it and you had an amazing experience shooting it, then, uh, you're more incentivized to actually spend hours and hours and hours talking about it, obviously. Um, and it also depends on the format, like doing this kind of stuff where you can have an, a real conversation, um, is, lovely doing these. So when you do, um, I think, you know, some days you do 64 minute interviews with like 30 second breaks, then, um, 
it, it doesn't really, there's no time for a conversation or you don't even have time to ponder something because then those four minutes are gone <laughs> or, or, um, it, 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 and when journalists only have one, maybe two questions, it, yes, you, um, it, it gets a bit repetitive on, uh, and, um, the, you don't get into a conversation that flows really because you don't really have time for that. So that can be relentless, but it's obviously it's part of the job and it's, um, it's a week or two, um, and, and, uh, and you just get through it, of course. Yeah. I mean, what do you find that you've preferred, you know, doing like a big action movie, um, or sort of doing something smaller? I will say that even when I see you in like an action movie, something that you feel like's a throwaway, like a Godzilla versus Cog, you still sort of bring, there's always something about your eyes in a film where it's like you're thinking, oh, not, <laughs> Uh, I don't know, it's sort of like this almost like, I think Michael Keaton's another actor who I feel like has this quality of like, it's like your eyes are always looking at something that's going on, um, in the frame or the scene and you're thinking about what is like your, your brain has an internal character, uh, and what you sort of, you don't see that in bigger action movies. It's even yeah, in Tarzan. Thinking so. about laundry, like, should I do laundry? <laughs> but like, did I, did I turn off the stove? Um, thank you. I really, that, 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 thank you very much. I really appreciate hearing that. It's very nice of you. Um, it's not really about the pro, like the scale of it. I think it's, it's a boring answer, but it's ultimately, it's about the, the, the character you're playing. Are you mm -hmm. excited to play that character? And it, it, it could be in a big $200 million monster movie or a small student film. If you're curious, and um, creatively excited when you read the script and, and, and feel like I want to, I, I want to spend a couple of months with this character. Uh, I want to learn more about him. And, 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 and uh, uh, that is the, the, the kind of the essence of it. And then other components, obviously who is the filmmakers? That's someone you really want to work with. Are you going to work with Nicole Kidman? Yeah. That's yes. Of course you say yes. Then, you know, it's, it, <laughs> it, it, it depends on, all those component and but then also that the extremes are fun and when you're thrown from again comparing Robert Eggers to Larson Trier diametrically opposite but <clears throat> it is uh, creatively inspiring when you're when you find yourself in in an environment that is very different from what you've just gone through uh those are the, the the most fulfilling jobs where where you feel like oh this is completely new um and that also goes for uh genre for scale mm -hmm. um doing a tiny little indie um and then go from that to something like the northman or godzilla versus kong which is like crazy big is a lot of fun uh and and if if you're connecting and having a great time playing the character it's um, that is a true privilege to be able to kind of go back and forth between um, different genres and, and a limited series to a movie, this mm -hmm. big movie to a small movie. And um, uh, if I can keep doing that, then I'm then I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah, I mean, Godzilla vs. Kong will always have a place in my heart only because it's the first film I saw after the pandemic. It's the first. Was it? It's the first film I saw in theaters. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's like the first film where um I think I said this with a friend. It was the first film where I didn't check my phone while watching it in like two years. Because yeah. when you're watching fo- movies at home during the pandemic, yeah. like your phone's by you, like yeah. everything's going on. It's the first time I got to sit in a movie and was like, wow, I'm actually watching a movie again. And I think that was part of the success of the movie. Um, it's so unapologetically big and loud and fun. And uh, uh, people after watching movies on, on their phones and iPads and, and computers, um, really craved something big and fun and visual and, and, and just mm. turn up to 11. And, um, I think, uh, they sure got that with Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> I mean, they get it with the Northmen too. And I can't not let you go without also asking about shooting the scene with Bjork, uh, who's also done, um, iconic Lars von Trier film, uh, yeah. Dancer in the Dark. Yeah. I mean, what was that scene like? Cause it's sort of what, it's what I expect. When I knew Bjork was in the film, I was like, this is exactly what she's going to deliver. It's yeah. exactly the one scene we're going to get from her. Yeah. <laughs> she did not disappoint. <laughs> uh, I think this is the first time since, uh, Dancer in the Dark, um, her first movie since Dancer in the Dark, um, and it, 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 it all came together because, uh, Bjork actually, uh, is a friend of Sean, who's the screenwriter who co-wrote the, the screenplay for the Northman together with Rob. Um, mm-hmm. they're old friends. They had like a punk band in Iceland in the eighties and basically grew up together. Um, so that's how Rob and Sean were able to, to convince Bjork to, to, to join. Um, and to shoot that scene was, uh, I mean, it was incredible, incredible. I've obviously uh, been a massive fan of Bjork since since I was a teenager, and uh, and she is just as cool and etheric as um, um, uh, as you can imagine. It's it's on um, that night, and we shot it in this um, in this burnout barn. Um, and with a massive full moon behind her, I don't even think it's in the movie. You don't see, but like in that night, obviously it had to be a full moon when you work with Bjork. So <laughs> that was just right behind her head. And that, that, um, uh, the, that image that visually standing there, um, uh, w- the way she looks, you know, and, and I'm sure people might've seen her in the, in the trailer like that. Um, and with a moon in the background, it was just like, yeah, I was pinching myself. I couldn't believe my luck that I was, that I got to, <laughs> it was one of those moments where I, I'm not sure I was very present in the scene. I kind of felt like I was watching something extraordinary. Like I was eating my popcorn and like, wow, this is great. And then I realized, oh shit, I'm on camera. You know, um, but w- what a treat. Yeah. I mean, Bjork, Nicole Kidman, I didn't even mention Anya Taylor Joy, who's also, Fucking amazing. Uh, I mean, from Eggers' first film, The Witch, too, uh, to this. So, um, I mean, what's it like being with Anya in scenes? I mean, what sort of intensity does she bring to a role? Is it, did you feel like you matched wavelengths? Cause I mean, she made chess look very intense in the Queen's yeah, Gambit. Uh, it was very helpful having, um, again, I, Rob and I had, worked together for many years before we started shooting the film, but I'd never been on set with him. Um, 
Anya had. So that was very good to have a, a, a fellow actor who had the experience of working with Rob because again, it's, it's so specific and particular. And so, so talking to her was, was great in, in prep of, of, of understanding a bit how, what that process would be like on set. Um, and we also spend a lot of time talking about in the beginning of the movie, you, there, there's not that much. They don't share the screen very much in the beginning of the film, Amleth and Olga. Um, but they obviously have this very strong, uh, connection and she is integral to, to this, to, to, to his destiny, his fates. And, uh, it, it, it was, um, it was imperative to, to, for the audience to feel that. So we, we, um, Anya and, and, and I talked a lot about, and with Rob, obviously, about how to, how can we charge those scenes and make them, um, even though in the beginning there, there's only a few of them, we really want the audience to feel that this is a, um, an electric uh, connection and it's really something special and um, that, that they feel that pull in a way. Um, and yeah, and so it was a lot of fun working, working with Anya and prep on that and then shooting. She's, um, incredibly talented, obviously, but also so sweet and humble and, and then just the best, most amazing team player. Uh, uh, it was tough out there and, and, um, there were days where Anya would be deep, deep, deep in the background behind 200 extras, uh, on a field for a week. Um, but, um, she would always give 100% even when she wasn't on camera, but be there and be supportive and, and, uh, and push the other actors and the extras and everyone. And just like constantly, um, um, just a source of joy and energy. And that was helped a lot when, um, when in those, those tough day and, and, and night shoots. Yeah. I mean, to go from, um, doing basically being in the mud and dirt um in the witch to then wanting to do it again like she must really love that yeah they, like, Rob and Anya are like they're super tight they really yeah. found each other on the witch so it's, it's, it's beautiful to see that creative uh connection and personal connection as well true yeah I mean I really I really really enjoyed the film uh and I feel like everyone in the film is someone I sort of really admire their work. You know, I mean, Clay's bang was in, um, the square, which is one of my favorite films of the past. Oh, that's such a great film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it's a nice seeing, um, it's nice discovering, um, Scandinavian cinema, I guess, uh, um, as an American. I'm happy to hear that. I <laughs> um, yeah. Last question before I go, um, other actress who I forgot to ask about you working with, um, you were in, Gaga's music video for Paparazzi years before she was Academy Award winner Gaga. Yeah. Do people still recognize you from that video? I get it occasionally. Yeah. I don't even think I knew who she was at the time. I believe that was I believe it was her first album, right? Yeah, it was definitely the first album. It yeah, was the it was first like, album, right? Yeah. Well, my, my friend uh, Jonas Orkelund um, directed that video and um, I think I was shooting season one of True Blood or something. Mm -hmm. It was very early days um, of, of, of True Blood and um, yeah, mm -hmm. he, Jonas called and said, I, I'm doing this music video and uh, this, 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 this girl, Lady Gaga and um, 
the stories like you try to kill her and then she ends up killing you and you're going to speak Swedish and uh, you want to do it. And I said, absolutely. And, <laughs> and then we had a crazy weekend uh, up in Malibu shooting that uh, beautiful villa. Um, well, I love you casually being friends with the director of Ray of Light, which is an iconic video as well. So, well, he's a fellow Swede, and we we tend to it's a little <laughs> Just, um, it's a weird little community here in the states of of, of uh, Swedish people in the in the industry. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine there's not that many of it's you. Like so a cult, yeah. <laughs> uh well, it was really nice to talk to you today. Alex. I really enjoyed it. Right? Yeah, again, it's it's nice to have a real conversation, and after three hundred four minute interviews, it's uh, I really really. <laughs> The Northman is in theaters April 22nd. When it comes to scents, you should pick ones that smell like, well, you. Target gets it, which is why they offer a range of personal care products with fragrances for everyone. Be true to floral you with Dove Peony and Rose Body Wash. Live your fresh life with Degree Ultra Clear Deodorant. Express your decadent side with Love Beauty and Planet Coconut Shampoo. This spring, choose care that brings you joy beyond labels. Pick up new favorites at a Target near you or online at Target.com. Gilbert Godfrey passed away at age 67 this weekend. Uh, and as a comedian, he was known for his crude humor and appearances on Hollywood Squares, Comedy Central Roasts, uh, and a bunch of iconic film roles like Iago in Aladdin. A lot of people put in photos of Iago, uh, in their Instagram stories this week. Sure. No, again, it reminds me of you know, my favorite thing people did on Twitter and they still do it on Robin Williams birthday when it's the photo of the genie, the photo (laughs) was RIP genie. You're free. I'm sorry. It's so insane. I I literally, it's, I can't believe I brought it up because I'm turning red. It's so shocking. It's insane and childish. Anyway. Um, yes, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, when we were, you know, he actually was a genie. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that, yeah. The Fisher King you know, of Agrabah, yes. If um, I were still allowed on Twitter, I would probably post something like, um, R.I.P. Mork, you can go back to your home planet. <laughs> More. Wow. <laughs> you might, you, you might get that Pam Dauber retweet. You never know. Um, uh, no, when we were devising this episode, I was like, oh, you should take the lead on Gilbert Gottfried. You probably know way more about him than I do. But honestly, I think you know all the Gilbert Gottfried stuff. He was like, uh, uh, an SNL cast member in the early eighties for like a very brief stint during their cursed sixth season, which is when after John Belushi and Gilda Radner left, they rolled in a new cast, had a new producer for a year. Lauren was supposed to come back the following year and it was a massive failure. They only kept. Um, Joe Piscopo and a, a, a new young performer named Eddie Murphy the following year. And that's eventually when Eddie Murphy popped off. But Gilbert Gottfried at that I time. I love when you go into like VH1, like oh, yeah. behind the music territory. <laughs> and they only kept a young performer named Eddie Murphy. <laughs> you know what? Tease. I think, I think I am utterly brainwashed by those. Like, I think that's how you're supposed to be a broadcaster. Like the each Hollywood story, you know? Um, 
Uh, but anyway, so, uh, Gilbert Gottfried at that time didn't even use his, like, trademark squinting or, uh, the voice you, you know of him. He was actually unrecognizable in most ways. But in the years following, he obviously got the Aladdin voice role. I remember him as a kid from the cursed Problem Child movies, which. Okay, can we talk about these movies? Okay, because I'm sure you I was obsessed. Them. Of course. I mean, I think everyone our specific age group was obsessed with the Problem Child movies. And they were constantly on TV. Yes. I've seen Problem Child 1 and 2 more. For, we talked last week about how many times we'd seen, like, our favorite movies. Like, Bring It On. Um, and how many times you've seen Clue. I actually would posit we've probably seen Problem Child more than those films. No. It was always on TV. Uh, unavoidable and also it, it, it's that part of that brand that was in vogue when home alone was popular right like uh-huh. naughty kids you know like tricking the adults that was uh, that was always baked into like all of our advertising like i remember the burger king kids club that was always like we're like rowdy and on our own and the adults can't tell us what to do <laughs> Every, everything about our lives was like kids are special and like little punks little imps <laughs> what's weird is you might think that gilbert Gottfried is the loudest person in the problem child movies but everyone in those fucking movies is screaming <laughs> It's like you were saying about all that. Like, children's entertaining is just yelling, really. Problem Child is about John Ritter trying to raise this kid, um, Junior, um, played by Michael Oliver, who is a young terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't want to know what happened to him, if you know what I'm saying. I don't want to look up I, the January 6th record, etc. I think that even as a kid, I was not on the Problem Child side. Oh, wow. You were You were advanced. I you're like prison works. I I hated this child (laughs) until um until the sequel, Problem Child Two, where you were introduced to a female problem child who is even more evil than him. Right. She and she had kind of like a haunted like a a Juliet Lewis quality. This seemed like if Juliet Lewis were four and possessed, that was her whole vibe. The girl was named Trixie. Um, and she was, she was evil. Right. No. And they, and they were kind of adversaries at first and then they worked together. But here was a gay thought I had as a child. I real I rooted for her cause her mom or not her mom, her mom was played by Amy Yazbeck who was in the original and of course was married to John Ritter for a while. I think Amy Yazbeck plays two different roles in these movies, but junior in the second one, his dad remarries Lorraine Newman, speaking of the original cast of SNL. And I remember fucking loving her. I was like, oh, like a, 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 a sullen bitch. This I understand. Can we get to the Wikipedia for Trixie, the um, girl problem child in Problem Child 2? She, uh, her real name is uh, Ivy Ann Schwan. Uh, uh, apparently her mother, Donna, was her manager during her child acting career, um, and was also deeply religious. So, um, she turned down the role of Claudia, uh, in the film Interview with the Vampire. So she turned down an audition. Mm, I see. Oh, I'm going to say, I feel like. Kirsten... As if she would have gotten it. Yeah, right. Uh huh. And there's like nothing with her after 2015. Her years active are listed 1989 to 2015. Oh, okay. Well. Uh, again, so these kids would like ruin John Ritter's life. I, you know, they, I, I remember a scene where they projected babysitters having sex out of the side of the house. Anyway, who is this movie for? Cause you would think it'd be for kids, but obviously kids shouldn't be seeing that either. Not to be Tipper Gore about it. But, um, anyway, Gilbert Godfrey played the principal 
in these movies and I mean, it's him screaming at you for 10 minutes. You know who is also in those movies? Jack Warden, who plays, um, John Ritter's dad and is, you know, in like Heaven Can Wait and Shampoo, just a classically grizzled bastard actor. And I bet he's, I bet he's the the part of those movies that holds up. So um, these films were box office successes though. Right. And critically panned. Critically panned. The first one like grossed 72 million worldwide. Uh, the second film, um, didn't gross as much, but it beat T2 Judgment Day at the box office. That is too bad. I mean, um, again, <laughs> guys, <laughs> historians should be tracing a lot more to this moment, you know? Um, also, there was a Problem Child 3, uh, Junior in Love, and it was a TV, TV movie. Film. Oh, I saw it at the time. Oh, I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Justin Chapman replaced Michael Oliver and, um, William Catt replaced John Ritter and then everyone else returned for the film. I, it's, you, you said that actor's name and I can actually picture him. I remember him, them replacing John Ritter, who, by the way, um, irreplaceable person, not just because of Three's Company. Weirdly, people don't know this. I think it's on the back of Hollywood High, right in the middle of town. I see it every day because Kimmel Studios are across from it. There is a giant mural of John Ritter there. So you can, you can, it, it, it it's the high school where their mascot is the Sheiks, which is, you know, mm. uh, in tribute to Rudolph Valentino, but I'm going to say politically that probably doesn't hold up. Um, but anyway, right there, you can see a big giant mural of John Ritter looking exactly I like John Ritter. I love that man. Mm-hmm. I love that man. That's my father. <laughs> he, the humanity. What did we else we put? Oh, Bad Santa. That's what else we put him in. I was raised on reruns of Three's Company. And by saying raised, I watched them myself late at night. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I, John Ritter is just truly like my favorite. Um, I don't act as a kid. Yeah. Oh, a, a genius physical comedian. And I, I, I feel that Joyce DeWitt inhabits me from time to time. I feel like I have the Joyce DeWitt energy about me. It still holds up. It still holds up, by the way. Three's company. You think so? I think, I mean, it doesn't hold up in its sort of like weird homophobic, um, and sort of sexist, misogynistic jokes, but the conceit, like the comedy in it, like you will still laugh watching it because it's so broad. I mean, it's like yeah. you're watching a tele- telenovela of a telenovela. Uh, okay, quickly, I'm going to wrap up Gilbert Gottfried by saying he had a podcast in recent years where he evinced that he is this old Hollywood um, super savant. He would like interview veteran actors, and uh, he was uh, much beloved in that way. Uh, he was canceled for some tweets regarding a tsunami a few years ago, but you know. Uh, you know, bad jokes. He's from another era. Maybe you make bad jokes sometimes. I'm not saying he should be uncanceled. I'm saying it's notable and I don't want that to go unnoticed. Oh wow, he was dismissed by Aflac because of those tweets. Correct, correct. Wait, yes. he tweeted 12 jokes about the earthquake disaster in Japan. Right, 12? it wasn't, it wasn't one. It was a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> she was on a roll! <laughs> He was like, I'm positive this is still great. Uh, I mean, a lot of people will also remember him from, um, the aristocrats, uh, which, um, everyone was talking about in 2005 as it was the funniest thing that has ever been invented. Well, it was, I, I'm sure maybe we even brought this up when Bob Saget passed away, but this is a documentary where people tell the same joke, it, their own version of a familiar joke, which is, they explain this family carnival act and usually it's there's a lot of lewd 
and ridiculous things they do. Like, oh, the, the son is jerking off the dad who's doing whatever, whatever. And then it ends with, and what's the name of this group? And you say the aristocrats. Um, my favorite in that movie is Wendy Liebman whose version of it is opposite. She describes something really benign. She's like, a family sits down to dinner. Uh, they thank each other politely. They leave the room. And then you ask, what's the name of that group? And she goes, the cocksucking motherfuckers. See, <laughs> a play on a joke. <laughs> it took me a while um, to realize that sort of like an aristocrat was just sort of like a member of like a social class. Um, yes. With like inherited titles. Because I was always, I was always confused because one of my favorite films as a kid was the Aristocats. You're right. And, and those are fancy people. So yeah. Um, I'll, people don't talk about the Aristocats enough. I don't even know that I've seen it. You don't see the Aristocats? No, I'm getting it even mixed up with Oliver and company in my head. I mean, that is a Billy Joel classic. Right. Yeah. And Bette Midler. Yeah. Yeah. His only, his only album I like the Oliver and company soundtrack. Wow, you you went with the hardest take possible. I do enjoy yeah. 52nd Street, but okay. I'm sorry, I hate Billy Joel. Get this? I don't know that I do, other than he is the most literal songwriter of all time. If you're looking for a metaphor, you won't find it. You'll find someone just being <laughs> straightforward telling you about an emotion. Seeds in an Italian restaurant is literally about an Italian restaurant. <laughs> right. Here's a bottle of red, a bottle of white. He's just, he's, he's like a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> um... Gilbert is also like great in the Beverly Hills Cop uh, franchise. Mm, yes, God, I haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop in forever. Another, um, talk about a movie you used to see on TV all the time. Like that's exactly the genre of movie that I haven't seen much of recently. I mean, I feel like we could do an entire episode on movies we remember only because they were on TV all the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, especially Project Redemption. Yeah. Uh, the Chase with Charlie Sheen and Christy Swanson. Why have I seen it forty times? Anyway, something broke in me when Cloris Leachman died. It's just like, oh, I guess anybody can die. So I'm now uh, callous, but I think it's important to take time to specifically recognize celebrities for whom there is no second one of, and Gilbert Gottfried is exactly that. Baby, she was 94. I, I She should have been 115. I just saw footage yesterday of uh, Carol Burnett, like, out and meeting somewhere. She's, like, 88 years old. She is looking spry and sharp as a tack. So, you know what? No excuse. Stay sharp, everyone. <laughs> That's Cloris Leachman's problem. She didn't stay sharp. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been like Carol Burnett, bitch. <laughs> That's my eulogy. <laughs> All right. Well, we're back. Keep it. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Wahoo. Lewis, what's your Keep It? Shall I start? Okay, this is an odd Keep It for me, because I don't think the movie is entirely a thumbs down. But there are Keep It's within this film that should be acknowledged. You guys know what Aileen is, which is the new unofficial Celine Dion biopic that is French, Starring an actress named Valerie Lemercier. Ira, I'm sure you've seen the press for this. Um, well, you know, um, when <laughs> I was in Paris, uh, 
The the movie was uh, uh everyone everyone's lips were talking about Aileen. Well, first of all, in Paris, they all definitely pronounce the S in Paris, so you nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, a couple things here. It's perfectly watchable, and the actress who's playing Celine Dion in it is uh, exceptional. You come away from the movie being like, wow, she really inhabited not just the uh, kind of regality of Celine Dion, but her utter French goofiness. Truly, it looks like Celine Dion is somebody who's may as well have been raised by Jerry Lewis comedy. The way she is just popping off with like, uh, strange movements all the time. Kookiness. There's no other word for it. Um, but here's what's going on with this movie that's strange. My keep it is to one. They are awfully forgiving of the fact that Rene Charles, who is not named Rene Charles in the movie, uh, definitely groomed Celine Dion. I mean, when you're marrying somebody you've known since you've been managing someone who was a preteen, I mean, it should be investigated more. And obviously, her parents in the movie question it. They're like, he's a old fat guy. Why are you into him? Uh, uh, and, and she basically just insists I'm in love with him and he is kind of following her lead, which is a, a, like a grooming tactic. Anyway, it should be mm-hmm. investigated by somebody. Secondly, One of the four G's. Yes. Grooming, girl bossing, gatekeeping, and gaslighting. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, that's very funny. Secondly, this actress, Valerie Lemercier, also plays Celine Dion as a child in the film. Meaning, mm. a child is on screen and her face is beamed onto her. And we see Celine, for example, auditioning for a record label with Valerie Lemercier's, you know, middle-aged face on this girl. In, <laughs> one, of, in, in one of the reviews, our friend Kyle Buchanan, who co-hosted a few weeks ago, said she looks like something that haunts Vera Farmiga in one of the Conjuring movies. And I have to tell you, you are clutching onto your seat when these scenes are happening. You cannot believe this is how they have decided to handle the childhood of Celine Dion as if she was a little girl with the face of a much older person. It is mind-blowing. It reminds me a little bit of an old Oscar nominee from the 50s, Julie Harris, in an adaptation of The Member of the Wedding, a Carson McCullers book, is 29 playing a 12-year-old. But that has sort of a Broadway vibe to it in the way that, you know, uh, who is it? Celia Keenan-Bolger plays like a little girl in the To Kill a Mockingbird on stage. Like, it feels mm-hmm. somehow a little bit more justifiable. And there are no computers involved. And her brother, Andrew Keenan-Bolger, is perpetually 12. Yeah, he, uh, he's a friend of mine. Looks like Mighty Max, <laughs> if you remember Mighty Max. Um, of course I remember Mighty Max. You know what? <laughs> Actually, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like um, the Goosebumps book, The Haunted Mask. Yes, right. What, um, anyway. You're in the old man mask on your face and then turning old. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's exactly like that. Just to let you know, I want you to see this movie because it's provocative enough and strange enough that it's worth viewing. But my God, I cannot believe the decision they made to uh, illustrate her childhood that way. Also, problem with this movie, though, with without the Renee Charles thing, Celine's life is largely drama free. Like they try to make big scenes out of like filming famous album covers you remember and the fact that she's saying my heart will go on at the oscars but that's not like i don't know it it it, it, it's it's not really worth encapsulating in a film so i'm as you can see i have mixed feelings about this movie you know i haven't really loved many french films since new wave became old wave (laughs) great 
<laughs> Ira just tilted his beret at me as he said that. <laughs> you can read the rest of my takes in Cahiers du Cinema. <laughs> Cahiers. <laughs> I actually took four years of French. I should be criticizing you way more often. Ira, what is your keep it? Uh, so my keep it this week involves the airlines. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. You know, um, so Delta, um, I'm a Delta girl, um, United, American, Alaskan, and Southwest have now ended their mask mandates. And of course, people have a lot to say about it. Here's my thing. Uh, clearly, um, I'm not running around, um, in a mask every day. Uh, you know, like I didn't have one on a Coachella except when I was protecting myself from the dirt, um, uh, and the dust of the desert. Um, a plane, honestly, I think I'm gonna always wear a mask on a plane because they are disgusting. It just feels right to have a mask on on a plane, I have to say. Even though, like, I'm somebody who, wants to luxuriate a little bit i want to have a pleasant experience there is just something of like who the fuck is next to me like this guy probably owns a macaw i don't want to be near that yeah it's just it's just when you remember how close you are to other people and you're thinking about what they did that day did they shower did they brush their teeth are they covered with the blood of their spouse who they just hacked up and buried underneath the bed before they hopped on a plane right you never know hitchcock movies are often true that's right (laughs) strangers on a plane is what we're talking about here okay i don't trust strangers (laughs) i don't trust strangers and i want to be protected you know what i haven't really thought about it till right now but i bet celebrities really are going to miss mask culture if it ever goes away. I mean, they're going to keep wearing it. Yeah, it's got, it's got, has to have worked out for them. Masks and like, um, like, like a hoodie, like sunglasses. Like you are basically just like invisible to the populace when you do that. Right. No, a, a couple of years ago, I was on a plane and sitting across from me was Cherry Jones. And like, I had to like clutch my heart, like, Oh my God, there's Cherry Jones. I bet Cherry Jones would be really annoyed to find I was looking at her for most of that flight. So she would probably just prefer to keep a mask on. A lot of people recognizing Cherry Jones on flights, Lewis. I, I mean, but the particular way in which a freak like me would recognize a celebrity, you just don't want to be, you don't want to be in the crosshairs. Actually, probably you and a lot of straight men recognize Cherry Jones on a plane. She was the president in 24. No, I know that I would intersect with 24 culture does not feel like me. And also succession, of course. Mm, I love 24. That seems like you. I'm not surprised. You know, um, it's also why I'm xenophobic. Well, also, no, network television of the 2000s, it doesn't surprise me you were a viewer. Also, you know, like, 24 was a show for men. <laughs> Sorry to laugh For real face. men. Um, for yeah. real men, okay. you know? And it's I crazy love, that I'm taking off the headphones and I'm walking away from the computer. I love popping a brewski and watching oh. Kiefer Sutherland torture terrorists. Brewski, right, that's what men say. They definitely In the use name of America. From- they definitely use slang from Wayne's World still. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Pop a cold one. <laughs> P- pork rinds. Yeah. All these male signifiers from like 1991. You know what? Speaking of planes, uh, you know what planes actually got me into recently? Hmm. Slim Jims. It's like been a long jerky. time. Yeah, well, okay. I, I never liked jerky at all. And then once the pandemic hit, uh, every... 
airline decided to stop their meal service and they gave us these shitty like um american version of bento boxes mm. uh with like bad cheeses and jerky in them um so i just like start eating you know the brie with the jerky and turns out i like jerky oh i i like us i like um strips of jerky I, I the slim jim consistency i feels like it's going to take my teeth out but um like a turkey jerky absolutely Mind you, yeah. I'm like Salt Planet, period. So almost anything salty I love. Yeah, so you know what? I like jerky like a real man. Okay. Um t- tell it to your tell it to your shrink. Great. Yeah. I'll tell it to my heart. A song that real men love, because real men love Taylor <laughs> Day. She's one Who hot babe. Yeah. She's one hot babe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I always say about Taylor Dane, she has the soul of a divorcee, but she's never been married, and that's talent. What encapsulates the soul of a divorcee? You're asking me? Uh, yeah. uh Just, you know, a sense of like... Three-time divorcee Louis Vertel. <laughs> I, I just think it means you're free and unfettered and like, you know... A little angst ridden and, uh, love, you know, j- just loving letting your rancor fly. Uh huh. You've definitely shouted about alimony oh, to a please. stranger before. Um, uh, yeah. definitely, you know, like, um, destroyed the personal belongings of, of a man. Uh, well, I, I, I feel that I live that picture of Nicole Kidman leaving her last, uh, meeting with Tom Cruise that led to their final divorce where she's exulting in the sun and probably getting like a ninth degree sunburn. And your hair does look like that when you leave berries. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Little red curly cues all over my face. Uh, anyway, that's our show this week. That was a fun one. So you're not going to do Coachella weekend too, huh? Absolutely not. Okay. I am old. Right. You ever think about how we're old? Because we did, we weren't when this podcast started, but now something has changed. My back <laughs> is, is my, my back has like um the is is screaming like Freddy Krueger's back, like with the souls of all the children he's murdered. And <laughs> <laughs> right? it's like, please let us, please, please lie down, Ira. My neck, my back used to mean something different to us. And now it's just what we say when we go to the hospital. <laughs> All right, Kathy comic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't drag Kathy into this. <laughs> Kathy guy's uh, wife, we love you. Do we love Kathy? I think she's, I, I think if Kathy didn't exist, there would be a real hole in the like legacy of comics and, uh, ladies therein. That's fair. You know who's underrated as a as a as a as a woman in comic strips? Go ahead. That that nosy bitch Mary Worth. Oh yeah. No one ever she talks about al- Mary Worth. She, like she is always in her neighbor's business. <laughs> and I think more people should appreciate just like how um how saucy that comic strip is. Yeah. Okay. Mary Worth, you got me thinking. I I thought the first lady of comics was Lucy Van Pelt, but it might be Mary Worth. Also, at this point, she is six hundred years old. No, uh, there's no such thing as new comics. I I I can't imagine something like, oh, I have a new comic strip coming out. All right. Thank you to Alexander Skarsgård for joining us. We will see you next week. Keep it is a crooked media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. 
Our editor is Charlotte Landis, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nara Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for our production support every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.